Plus show. Long live plus. Fuck minus. That's true. This is Aliens and Artist, part two of our conversation with Dr. Stephen Finlay. Scholar, author, professor of religious studies at Louisiana University, specializing in African-American religion and amazing human being. In this episode, we explore Dr. Finlay's extended family, the role occult practices like conjuring and magic have played in their history, and how that sits with respect to the pronounced Christian faith in his genealogy. Also, what it's like for Dr. Finlay to try and document and preserve the knowledge of these magical practices before the living keepers of them pass away. And last but not least, three fates for the glass in my foot. But first, I wonder if we can explore some of your early life history. How does your lived experience inform the work you're doing? Do you have a strange genealogy or does it anchor in personal passions? I appreciate the question about my life experience and its relationship to my intellectual interests in race, religion, the paranormal, UFOs, and so on. I think it's connected. But I want to say that I've been interested intellectually for two decades since I was a graduate student at Rice University. I'd have to think about whether or not I was interested before then. My earliest memories as a child, Stuart, I would have to say were of Los Angeles. My earliest memories were of a little house in Watts, like the Watts riot, 1965. And I was born in Northeast Texas, little city near uh, Waxahachie, I guess guess that's Northeast Texas. And my mother left there when I was really young. And so I don't even remember living there. Again, my earliest memories are of inner city Los Angeles. And my family was always religious, like many families in America. Two traditions that I trace on my father's side, his mother was Church of God in Christ, which is an older Black Pentecostal tradition, the largest Black Pentecostal denomination in the country. And his father, after whom he's named, William Walker Finley Sr., comes from a family of African Methodists, which is the oldest Black denomination. It's not the oldest tradition, but it is the oldest organized denomination. So through Church of God in Christ and AME, my family was oriented in the world. And even though I grew up in California, many of my grandmother's sisters who moved to South Central Los Angeles, near where we also lived, and others, we were always around them. And they still practiced Black Pentecostal tradition of the Church of God in Christ. I'll just say, and I'm skipping over a lot here, that I knew that religion needed to be a part of my life one way or another. Either I was going to be a practitioner professionally, or later I was going to be a scholar. Uh, At one point, I was considering both. Religion was just a really important part of how I understood the world. It was an important part of how I understood African-Americans to make sense of the world. But outside of those Christian traditions, I'm not sure what influenced me, because intellectually, I haven't been very interested in Christian traditions. I've been interested in all the stuff that actually gets obscured by these Black Christian traditions. 
both in and outside the academy. The majority of what one would probably call the study of African-American religion in the academy is black church studies, overwhelmingly, 90, 95%. So there's very little work, Stuart, and very little attention to currents uh, in black life outside of Christian ones, even though I would argue that we treat even the black Christian traditions as discrete. I'll tell you what I mean by that. My mother grew up sharecropping. Uh, she had 11 brothers and sisters. Her parents were sharecropping. My mother's father had, I think, eight or nine siblings in East Texas. And their last name was Ward, W-A-R-T. And so every time I have a chance to visit with my mother, I'm always trying to get more information. You know, why are there all these other wards out there and we don't get together? We don't know anything about them. So all I know are all the wards that come from John Ward, my grandfather. And there are lots of them. But when you think about the fact that John Ward had at least eight other siblings who are still in East Texas, there are probably hundreds and hundreds of wards in East Texas. There's no family reunion really that brings everybody together. They've started doing something like that in recent years, but it's still mostly the branch of the wards who we didn't talk to. All right. So I asked my mother what that was about. And my mother says, well, my father didn't want us to go around them because they were into all that Ogeechee stuff, right? What my mother meant was these black magical traditions and conjure. And so I was close to one of these other wards, these wards who come from these other branches. His name was Vernon Ward. And we knew him because he was in the military in Southern California. He was in the Marines, which was you know, near San Diego. And we didn't live that far from there. So Vernon would come visit us when we left Los Angeles and moved to Santa Ana, California, which was south. And Vernon died last year. And when I went to the funeral in Nacogdoches, Texas, I was talking to his sister and I raised this question. And we were talking about why all these wards don't know one another. And I was telling her, well, my mother said it's because my father didn't want to them to go around, you know, she's talking about my grandfather, didn't want them to go around all these other wards because they were into all that, that Geechee stuff. She said, what's Geechee stuff? And I said, well, what I think she meant was all this magic and conjure. And I start talking about it and talking about it. She said, you know what? Your grandfather was right. And so she started telling me all these folks in her family who would have these back rooms where they were doing all this magical stuff where the children weren't allowed to go and all this other stuff. And so I find that even in my own family, there's all these magical traditions that were practiced that nobody wants to talk about. And even when I ask about it, people don't want to talk about it. I have to dig and ask people about it. And they're like, you know what? That's right. Just like Vernon's sister did last year after the funeral. And so I can't say to answer your question, that I have this really curious and interesting genealogy that led me to my interest in the paranormal and African-American culture and religion and so on, I can say that subsequent to my interest, I've been digging more into my family. And what appears is that there was so much more going on in my family that's related to my interest that now I want to know more about. So I entered that the other way. I was interested first rather than having been aware of a genealogy in my family.
Well, if we wanted to invoke Eric Wargo here, we could make a case for retrocausation. Right, that's right. And I like Eric <laughs> a lot and his work. So let me say one other thing that connects the paranormal to my family in East Texas, and in particular to Vernon. It was around November 22 that I had a long conversation, telephone conversation with my cousin Vernon Ward, whom I knew from Southern California, but he was from Nacogdoches, Texas, which is in East Texas. We talked about his family, his marriage, some things I had never known because, again, he lived in East Texas and grew up with all those wards. I grew up in Southern California. I hadn't talked to Vernon for six months. And it was in May of 2021 where I had this dream of Vernon. And I've only talked about this a few times, including at Esalen the week before I met you. And I had this dream of Vernon, which was really weird because I don't dream about Vernon. I hadn't even talked to him about, for about six months. I pop up, I look at the clock. The clock says 523. I turn around to the side of the bed to where my feet were on the edge of the bed. I grab my phone, which is on a TV tray, like my computer is right now where my phone was. I look at my phone and there's a text from Vernon at 523. The very moment when I popped up from having a dream of, about Vernon and looked at the clock, which said 523, I then checked my phone and here there is a text from Vernon, 523. That kind of precision had never happened to me before even though I was already convinced intellectually that this stuff was real, these coincidences. And the text said something about he was fighting for his life. He had cancer that had metastasized throughout his body. And that that was probably the reason for the communication. But again, just the triangulation, I think I can call it, between dreaming about him, waking up from that dream at that precise moment, seeing the clock, it was 5.23 in the morning, looking for my phone, checking my text. There's a uh, text from him at 5.23 in the morning saying he was dying. And so if there was an initiatory experience for me, it was that. I'd always had experiences of coincidences that for me could only be coincidences, hyphenated, coincidence, you know, these sort of things acting together in meaningful ways rather than something that just happened haphazardly with no meaning. I'd always had that. I, I remember thinking about my cousin who I hadn't talked to in a couple months, were really close and cussing him out out loud. Like if this so-and-so don't call me, this so-and-so doesn't call me, I'm a, I'm a whoop his ass. First call next morning is from my cousin, right? That kind of thing happens to me all the time. This was different. There was all sorts of precision and connection here in this experience that, that I couldn't deny. I even texted Jeff Kripal about it, probably six o'clock that morning. Two weeks later, Vernon died. I don't know what to say, except that I'm glad that I meant enough to him that I could be a part of his last days. And that means something to me because how else does this stuff appear across these multiple media, the dream, the clock, the text, unless he saw us in some ways as connected and our relationship as, as significant. That's all I really 
have to say about that, except that to me, that was sort of an initiatory experience. And I'd always had little experiences that to me happened so often as a regular part of my life that they couldn't be coincidence, but nothing like this. We were half making light of retro causality as a factor, but taking in the big picture, you as a scholar of esotericism, the magical tradition running through your genealogy, have you been able to learn more about what those paths and practices were, how those works and lineages were applied or cultivated? I don't know anything else about it. I can only say that I look forward to future opportunities to sit down with some of these relatives in East Texas who are also Christian. And so they don't want to talk about it necessarily because this is devil stuff. So when my cousin, who's Vernon's sister, said my grandfather was right, she didn't mean that he was just right in terms of these things going on in my family, these conjure traditions. He was right also in not wanting to, to be around it because it was evil. That's the way she understood it too. And I don't see it as that. I see it as an important part of, like you say, my genealogy and my family that was active across multiple folks in my family, from what I understand now, that I want to know more about, that also say something about the world and the nature of the world that we just don't get if we don't take these things seriously. I hope I have more opportunities to talk to folks because there is no record. They don't want to talk about it. I have to pry it out of folks. And I hope I have more opportunities to do that because it's actually significant to me. Not an evil thing or bad thing. If anything, it's, it's neutral. Neutral. These conjuration traditions were used for all sorts of things, good and bad, whatever those terms might mean. Do you worry that as the generation's age, the knowledge will pass before you're able to preserve it? All the time. All the time. I ask Whenever I can, whenever I have a chance to sit down with somebody, I ask who my ancestors were, what were they doing, what kind of things, probing questions to try to find out in a backdoor sort of way, what kind of things might have been happening and going on that may point to some of these traditions we're talking about that they otherwise wouldn't just offer and might resist talking about. And then trying as often as I can to write some of this down, like I did in my Esalen paper the week before I met you. The week when I met you at Esalen, there was another meeting the week before that on what Jeff Kripal and Charlie Stang called Black Superhumanism, which Biko Gray and I convened. It was just a wonderful meeting. And I talk about Vernon as a way of entering this conversation about Black superhumanism. And I say something like, when I had this text conversation with Jeff Kripal, At about 6 a.m. in the morning, by the way, because remember, the text was at 523, and I actually called Vernon about 530 in the morning, 535, somewhere like that. So I called him almost immediately. And it was such a profound experience that I had to text Jeff, and I had this exchange with him about it. One of the things Jeff said was, you're superhuman. And so I used that as a way of entering conversation in the paper that I wrote on this symposium, Esalen Symposium on Black Superhumanism. And I'm not sure what to make of the conjure in my own family and my experience with Vernon and what that says about the broader world or African-American religion or anything. I just hope I have other opportunities to gain insight into what folks were actually doing, not just the narratives. Oh, we were a good Christian family. Because there's always all kinds of other things going on that people don't talk about 
beyond the big narrative, the respectable narrative about being a good Christian. And I hope I can learn more about that and write about it somewhere as a way of sort of canonizing. And when you reflect on these esoteric lineages in African-American religion and spirituality, what do you wish the world would know or be able to integrate from those wisdom traditions? What are our blind spots that could be improved by those wisdom paths? Well, I don't want to be too much of a neocrypolis here. I've used that term here. But I mean, it does say something more broadly and something significant about the nature of the world and the nature of human beings. But I also want to push that universal intention with the particular, because these magical traditions meant something specific for Black people who had to cope with a world that seemed out of their control and absurd, which was a violent world. And these magical traditions in some ways, not just for Black people, but particularly in this case for Black people, were a way to gain some sense of coherence and control over the world through these practices and ideas. You could do this and that and make this happen where you may not have even had control over your own body for the most part. Someone else owns you. And so the universal is important to me, but so is the particular. But both of these together, I think, say something about how limited we are and how we understand the world. I mean, strictly in scientific and materialist terms. And I don't know where that gets us. I don't think it gets us very far. I mean, look at the world in which we live now and how we understand ourselves and one another. And I'm not saying that these terms that we're talking about would keep us out of wars and genocides and enslavements, police brutality, but it would be great if we would come to see ourselves as more complicated than these materialist interests that lead to those kind of things. I've been kind of kicking around a notion since we met. You came up through Rice, and you're probably the perfect person to ask this question to. Is there something miraculous going on at Rice University? You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Rice is a collection of folks in the academy is totally unique. I'm not sure why it happened at Rice. I'm just glad I had an opportunity to study there and to be a part of it. And I see myself as extending what maybe a couple decades from now might be seen as the Rice tradition. In the same way we talk about a University of Chicago tradition, like the history of religions and so on. I don't know how that happens, but I do know that when I look at the work of many of the people who have studied there, where they study African-American religion, Asian religions, Buddhism, and so on, there's something very, very different is going on in those projects for many of the students since I arrived there at 2002 than at any other institution in the country. I don't know how to explain it, but I see the product that are being produced for me are far more expansive and creative than what I see in the study of religion generally. And I should also add that the study of religion generally bores me, especially African-American religion. And this is no disrespect. It's just that the kind of things we're talking about are some of the only ideas that motivate me, precisely because nobody or very few people are talking about them. And they're so dynamic and they have such great implications for our world. The other stuff gets published. People get jobs and endowed chairs and all kinds of things from doing the things that the academy affirms. I'm just not interested in those things. My road has been much more difficult. 
at the same time, because I persevered, I'm in a space where I can have these kind of conversations without giving a shit what anybody thinks. Like, this is what I do. But it took me a long time to build this momentum that I have now in my career, where I have multiple book contracts, where I basically write what I want to write and do the kind of research I want to do. That took up the first decade of my career, where I was just getting all kinds of rejections. And yet, I would publish something here in this journal, something there in that journal, this top journal, that elite journal. And all of a sudden, at the end, there's this accumulation now of a corpus in a space that I created for myself because I endured all the rejection and pain. And when I say pain, I mean it. It was hard not getting a book contract, wondering if I was going to be able to make tenure for all these reasons that maybe didn't have anything to do with whether or not I was saying something important. And I see all of that in my rearview mirror now. And this is why I continue to do the work that I'm doing, even with the Nation of Islam. There's so much more to be said there about these matters that doesn't show up in any of the scholarship. Again, I've been incredibly bored with much of the intellectual production about African-American religion in specifically and religion in general. And now I'm in a position to do something about it, but also to encourage others and to work with others who want to do something about it. Because this group of folks who are now doing this, as you know, from Esalen archives is growing. And I'm just grateful to have been a part of that. And it doesn't happen without Rice University. And I'll stop there. When you reflect back on those years and the painful obstacles, what would you like to be different for subsequent generations coming up and doing the work you're doing? What do you wish will be in place for them? Well, first, I hope that I'm able to do this for a couple more decades, this intellectual work. But by that time and along the way, I hope that scholars like me and others have published so much that uh, the paranormal, the esoteric, UFOs, and so on, become more legitimate areas for scholarly research, that we're much more open to the non-material and not strictly materialist ways of understanding the world that even over-determine the study of religion. And I'd like scholars later to have a broader range of experiences that they can investigate that are seen as legitimate uh, areas of inquiry rather than something kooky, because people have been reporting this for ages. And what are we to do with that? Well, the academy says they're just weird or kooky and dismisses them. But it's too many people, too many experiences for that even to be a legitimate response. I'd like scholars coming after me and those who are coming along with me to have a broader range of work that they can do and still have academic careers, you know, not be seen as kooks. When I tell people over the years, for example, that I'm interested in race, religion, and UFO, or some kind of combination of terms that describe my work, they always look at me really weird. And I have to be honest, I look at them weird right back because I'm saying there are a whole set of experiences out there that say something about the world that you're unwilling or unable to deal with and to see as significant. And I see those things as important. I'm not willing to be constrained in what I pursue as legitimate. I hope that future generations don't have to fight those battles that some of us have. And there are very few people, even in my own field of race and religion and African-American religion, who do this kind of work. But it's growing. 
It's small, but it's growing. There's an organization called The Long Now, which I think about from time to time. One of their missions is just to get people to feel and think 10,000 years into the future, which initially may seem ambitious or fraught with issues, but it's also just a blip in the larger scheme of things. How do you feel when you sense your way forward into our deep future? Do you feel optimistic or worried or a sense of wonder? And what's there for you? Sure. I wish I could say that I was much more optimistic about the future than I am. I'm just not. I just hope that I'm wrong. That's really all I can say about that. I hope that I'm wrong. Does the concern tether to a particular crisis, ecological, political, technological, sociocultural? I would say it's all of that. But with respect to America, it's also race and religion. I mean, those are two problems and barriers. And I'm not saying we should jettison each one of those. Again, I'm interested in the universal and the particular. I'm simply suggesting that the way that we have engaged those two collapse more than they reveal and disclose. And I want to see them from the opposite end for what they can disclose about the world. I want to see them as openings for possible experiences rather than closures. That's not how the world usually deploys those particular categories or experiences them. And I want to see them differently. Since 2017, Leslie and Ralph's article in the New York Times, the past five years we've felt some tectonic shifts in the realms of UFOs, UAP, and what many term disclosure. Glacier-paced as it's been, do you feel there's a genuine lasting change occurring? What's your sense regarding the public acquiring orientation and belief that the phenomena are legitimate and profoundly important? That's a really important question that I tried to deal with to bring this full circle in the new afterword that I wrote for my book on the Nation of Islam right after the government disclosure about UFOs. It's something like June 21, when the Department of Defense press conference. And I tried to weave that into uh, how the Nation of Islam would respond to those disclosures about UFOs. I think, again, those disclosures can be helpful. I think they can help to legitimize the kind of work that we do. And I think that's happening. And I think you implied that. And I think you're right. I still think they're only partial. It's clear to me from reading some of those reports, the unclassified reports, but also my engagement with these conferences, some of which have been very private, some of which have had members from the intelligence community, that there's so much more going on that the public doesn't know. But I'm still grateful for the shift that you're implying. Because I can say, I told you so. <laughs> I've been doing this work and interested in this for, for two decades now, and especially over the last decade when people were looking at me cross-eyed. And now here the government saying this stuff has been going on for a long time. It's real. We don't quite know what to make of it. I've just been saying I've been telling y'all so. <laughs> that's, that's the great section B of this question. You and I and other folks from various gatherings have direct, unmistakable knowledge that the intelligence community is engaged with these phenomena in a way that is totally dislocated from what the farcical public narrative is. The whole notion that so-called authorities are arguing over the ontological status of UFOs in public is utterly absurd. 
they are over a half a century into an intimate, deep engagement with this enigma. Are you able to maintain equanimity, knowing that the reality behind the scenes in the intelligence community among experiencers, etc., that reality is so radically divergent from the public narrative? Or is there tension for you in considering that? No, I feel some tension because here I'm interested in this work and the academy, like you said, is just so far behind. And yet they're lauded for being so far behind. They're lauded for these materialist paradigms that jettison all the stuff that we're talking about that people in high places have known for decades was real and quantitative. And I'll just end by saying, I was so happy at the Archives of the Impossible earlier this month to have a conversation with Edwin C. May, who had just received an email from yesterday. And you know, he is a nuclear physicist who was involved in you know, the remote viewing research for the US government and the military. Such a charming, an intelligent guy. I didn't understand all the language he was using, talking about how remote viewing and precognition and all of these kind of things was related to thermodynamics and information and entropy. And I hope to have future conversations with him. But I'm happy to be able to have those conversations with people who have known and researched and argue that these things have been quantitative facts for decades. It doesn't necessarily help the context. It doesn't shift necessarily the context in which I work, but it does give me a sense of satisfaction because I'm going to do this work no matter what, even without the Edwin C. Mays and the Jacques Vallées and the Jeff Kripals. I'm interested in it, but it does give me a sense of, of satisfaction. For more information on Dr. Finlay, check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by the Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, past life regression, abduction, contact with non-human entities, and also contemplative spiritual practices, creativity as an esoteric path, and much more. Click the link in the show notes to book a session or go to theliminalmuse.com. Three fates for the glass in my foot. Time ago, a shard entered the soul. It crippled the us that is me. We hobbled for weeks, an addled elder, making the trek from bed to toilet. A sleepy penguin with a migraine in its flipper, careening its weight in the pilgrimage to fridge. A pendulum descending the stairs, always working to avoid the stabbing pain in the soul. Too small to see, just the size to paralyze a man. Then one day we noticed it no more, painless, nimble, a gazelle again. Now I wonder where it went. Three possible fates for the shard in my foot. One, I imagined it all. No, made it up. I am an inveterate liar. Composer, writer, sculptor, painter, artist. Delusional font of story. I could make anyone believe anything. A shard 
that is not a man, a man that he is not a shard, they are too. So there was no shard, but the pain was real. I spun hurt with the loom of my mind, borrowed and stolen threads they be. Two, it was expelled by the superior wisdom of millions of skin cells, revolting, pushing the shard inexorably, screaming to that glass other, you are banished from the eye that is we. Three, and most likely, it became part of I that is us. We, millions with no other recourse, struck a truce, made a home for the shard, where it lives, no longer menacing nerves, but granted permanent residence within a boundary it violated, injured, and conquered, simply by remaining. It's an interesting thing you notice about the self. There isn't one. Is it too soon? Is it too soon? To pop a cap in its ass? To pop a cap in its ass? The pumpkin will grin till compassion kicks in to pop a Is it so hard? Is it so hard to put a kiss on its lips? To put a kiss on its lips? Blow it out into space where it is erased and put a kiss. Heaven's birthplace 
Bastards. Mm, bless the bastards. Bless the bastards.